This is A Word Fitly Spoken. My words about reading the scriptures, about preaching the scriptures, and about the mission on which the scripture sends all of us. We here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in His Holy Word. I'm Willie Grills, here as always with Zelwyn Heidi. Joining us today, Adam Kuntz out of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Gentlemen, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. I'm time for gratuitous weather posting. Zelwyn, have you blown away up there? No, but we're sweltering. It's been 100 degrees lately, so... <laughs> Not good. Take shelter up there. Find find the shade tree, if you can. What What tree? <laughs> Adam, Pennsylvania, mild as always. Uh, no, this week it was, uh, we almost got flooded out. It's been insane rainstorms. You know, now it's nice and mild again. No, it was, it's been pretty bad. That's not good. Not good at all. Hopefully the damage was minimal. Yeah, nothing at the church or anything, but, um, lots of people kind of stranded and major roads shut down because of flooding. Hmm. I live in the most geographically midwestern like of Pennsylvania's counties. This is as flat as it gets. Flooding I'm very sorry. I'm yeah, very what, sorry are what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? You know, the Lord and his providence puts us where he wants us and he Nobody causes the wind to blow where it will. Yeah. <laughs> so today we're here to talk about an interesting subject, an important subject, uh, particularly to all pastors, but really to all Christians. We're going to talk about the relationship between doctrine and and life. This is an important thing. We can get lost in a purely quote-unquote practical approach wherein the Bible is treated as some kind of economics book perhaps or some type of of merely some sort of self-help guide. On the other hand, in the trap we also fall into very often is that the scripture is treated as something that isn't quite as clear as it is. It's tempting when studying doctrine to ignore certain words, right? It's tempting when looking at the Bible as a guide to make the words say something that they don't or to pretend that the words themselves are silent. The thesis for today is essentially that Jesus' words for us mean what they say and that we should heed our Lord's admonitions wherever he gives them. Is that a fair summary of what we're going to talk about tonight, guys? Yeah, I think that what we're talking about tonight is a little, it's a little less particular than the overviews of biblical books or historical periods or particular works from the past that we've been doing. And it's a little bit more about the overall perspective that we are bringing to things, which will be fleshed out as time goes on. But it's a perspective about what the individual Christian and then also the church's relationship is to not simply the affirmation of the Bible's authority, but the use of the Bible within Christian life. Also about our perspective that wisdom is a major understudied topic, both within people's own appropriation of the Bible and also within the church's preaching. So that what we're talking about tonight the connection between doctrine and life, or it's sometimes phrased, especially for pastors, as the connection between doctrine and practice, is a connection we want to be able to understand clearly for all kinds of reasons, both for our own part individually, but also for the church at large. Yeah, very good. So where do we want to start, gentlemen? Is there a particular passage or book that we want to use as sort of a springboard here? Or what would be a good place? I mean, if you guys are... Agreed. I think the clearest place to go is to Matthew 7. Zelwyn, did did you have the problem ever of when you read uh, Jesus talking about in Matthew 7, for instance, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. What kind of ways of getting around those words have you seen people use? Well, I suppose sometimes you see people try to say that like good works, for example, would be an automatic thing. Right. This idea that we don't really need to take the full force of these words because we kind of, I I hate to say explain it away, but I don't, I'm. (laughs) It's too late now. You said it. (laughs) It Yeah, I know. It is out there. It's going to be on the, it's on the internet. So it's forever. It's. 
But I mean, I really don't know how else to put it, because if we're going to take something that's clear in the scriptures and we're going to try to put a spin on it in order to make it say something different, I think that's what we're doing. And I actually have a really good example of this from my own days back when I was, <laughs> how do you want to put it? Full of rage. Days of rage. <laughs> my days of rage. a long trench coat and spent a lot of time in the library. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, the, when, you, when you're first especially introduced to some ideas, they can be very intoxicating. But I do remember one time in uh, homiletics class, I was presented with a text that was very clearly uh, presenting, I mean, for the lack of a better way of putting it, the law. And I was trying in my darndest to make it say something other than it was in an attempt to make it gospel if that makes any sense <laughs> yes it's it certainly does i mean i mean why why did you want to do that Zell, and why did you want to change the bible <laughs> yeah i know right i i'm here i am admitting no, a pastor I mean, on yeah, the internet like, why why is that an, <laughs> why is that an impulse that we've all had hot and heavy almost immediately let's go Zell, answer let's the question. Go. yeah exactly <laughs> i'm on the spot now well i mean because we come to the bible with these certain notions of how we want to present the doctrines of the Bible. And then when we're presented with the, the raw text, as it were, sometimes we want to trim the tree down. We want to make it manageable. We want to make it into something that we can present in the way that we think it should pre be presented. But unfortunately, the Bible is, is not a, a nicely tended grove but it rather a forest. And I don't mean that in a, in a negative sense, like we can't understand it, but we have to let the Bible be the Bible, right? I mean, that's kind of what we're getting at well, tonight. Is this not how we build our houses upon the rock rather than on the sand? By, I mean, Jesus is explicit. By heeding his words and by doing them, you are likened to the man who builds his house upon the rock. Mm -hmm. The one who doesn't listen and who doesn't heed, his house gets washed away for he built it on the sand. Again, these are very simple words in this discourse of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet it's so easy to just brush them off and say, well, he's not really instructing us. He's telling us this, you know, to elicit perhaps an emotional response or even a spiritual response. But he doesn't really mean what he says. That's the great temptation. It, Lord, you, you can't possibly mean uh, that the gate is that narrow. Lord, you can't possibly mean that I need to take up my cross and follow you. That's the call of the Christian life that's difficult. And quite honestly, the Christian is not called to an easy life. The Christian life will be difficult. Now, I've taken any good feels out of the room right now by saying that, I realize. But, but that is the truth, and that's the promise that we're given. We're given the promise of a difficult life, but a glorious eternity forever with our Lord. I think that... One way that I've heard the notion of the tree and the fruit, the healthy tree bearing good fruit and the diseased tree bearing bad fruit, categorized glibly is of checking fruit or, or counting fruit. And that someone who is focused on putting into practice the words of Jesus in his life is somehow a fruit checker, which is a bad thing. And it focuses too much on you. And I just want to take a look real quick at verse 21 in Matthew 7, where Jesus explains the relationship between talking and doing this way. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, so that the one who is cast out of the kingdom of heaven, the one who at the end of Matthew's gospel will be sent into eternal fire, that one is somebody who has an orthodox confession. He confesses that Jesus is Lord. He knows who Jesus is, and he knows the right answers, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it, it, that, that, that one, that is, that is necessary but not sufficient. Well, and, and, and if I may, it's the guy, the, the person here is surprised. He thinks because of his, of his mere confession— this mere oral confession, right? That he's going to be saved. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, there, there's no indicator here that it's merely just a pretender. 
And that's the spooky thing about it. I mean, that's the heaviness of it. Yeah, there's the honest confusion in verse 22 that you're going to hear all the way later in Matthew 25. Like, we had the right thing. We thought we were doing the right thing. Yeah, did we not do all this? Yeah. Yeah, right. Right, yeah. So they are sincere about what they're doing, and yet it's insufficient. Well, you know, that language sounds a little more synergistic than I intended, but (laughs) nevertheless, here we are. I mean, these men believed that they had all their ducks in a row, so to speak. I don't think you can read into the text a pharisaical thing here, or as, as we typically use the word, where they're pretenders and they know they're pretenders. There seems to be a, a sincere, as we said just a couple minutes ago, surprise. Yeah, there is surprise. I think I think that one thing to keep in mind is the relationship between slogans, which sound correct, and how those things are actually put into practice. Because it is necessary to say that Jesus is Lord, but it is not sufficient for life with him. But slogans will exist even when you are a worker of lawlessness. You may have the correct slogans. And if you have those, you really need to be on your guard that your confession has not become in and of itself just a slogan, a marker of your own the fact that you're just good to go. You're fine. You've got all the right ideas. You're great. Because I think that, you know, that the process that Zelwyn described is certainly very familiar to me, where you take something that is in the Bible and because of a certain slogan in your head that you have acquired from the internet or (laughs) you have read or, you know, you didn't even read it in an article on the internet. You just saw it in a meme. (laughs) The, the, The tasty infographic really moved you. Right. You, you've, got, you've got the slogan and you're reading the Bible. And because you believe that the slogan is correct, you are now twisting the Bible, even if in another part of your head, you believe that the Bible is authoritative. You're twisting the Bible and you're doing that in order basically to make the Bible better than you think it might actually be. Well, and we do, and we do call out other groups who do this. We do it all the time with dispensationalists or the Calvinist or whatever, we accuse them of doing the self-same thing. But any Christian can find themselves in this trap very easily, placing that grid over the word and fitting the word into it, rather than letting um, the word be free. It's so tempting to keep the well capped, right? Zalwin, can you like walk us a little farther along in the process that you were describing earlier about wanting to change things? I mean, I, that's very familiar to me. What happens once I have all the correct slogans? What happens to my capacity to repent? What happens to my capacity for self-righteousness once I've got all my slogans? <laughs> well, you're, you're just <laughs> putting it up for a swing there. Good. <laughs> I... Basically, I mean, what happens, I think, especially and unintentionally in, in many yes. cases. Unintentional yes. is very, yeah, exactly. Yeah, or, or out of sincere motivation. But nobody goes in saying, like, I'm going to deliberately do this. Right. You basically, because of that idea that you have, because of the, the meme, to use internet language, that has been stuck into your head, you end up equating, I mean, I don't know how, to, how else to put it. You end up taking that idea, those memes, those slogans which you have, and you're making them the the marker of what it means to, I mean, to to confess the truth. And when we make that the case, it really becomes a matter of do you have all of the right ideas? Yeah, and I I think there's also a self-sufficiency that enters in here where, like a Pharisee, and I, I... I want to be really clear about this because a lot of times if you talk at all about works or Christian life, someone will accuse you of being a legalist or a Pharisee. So I want to be really clear that we are actually saying something that is utterly the opposite of Pharisaism. Because if you notice coming up in the lectionary is the story of the Pharisee and the publican. And something to notice about the Pharisees is that their religious system can exist without God. They don't, they, sure. they do not actually, they just need him as a formal affirmation. They need him as kind of the ultimate slogan, the ultimate meme, right? It doesn't right. really, he doesn't really have to be real because their, their religious way of life could go on whether or not God exists. They can continue on with that way of life because it just involves their, because their performance is correct. 
they have the correct slogans and they have the correct affirmations and the correct religious performances, whether it's in public or the tithing or whatever. That's what slogans do to you. They, they, tra- they trap you so that you are no longer capable of being corrected by the Bible. They calcify you. Yeah, you, yeah, exactly. You don't need to be. You are, you are hardened against the Bible, even when you believe that you are a preacher of the Bible, because the Bible can no longer correct what you're doing because you're already done thinking. Right. Done hearing. Oof. Is that totally off base? I mean, I, I, I certainly recognize this in my own development. Like the day that I stopped trying to explain away, you will recognize them by their fruits, right? Because I had a couple different ways of doing that. Well, their fruits are their orthodox doctrine, right? But Jesus is continually talking about what people are doing. Or, you know, he didn't really mean that, right? Just like he didn't really mean it when he said, if you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. He didn't really mean that. You know, I mean, there's, there's, there's ways of working around this. You know, they always bring up, well, he doesn't really want you to, to cut your hand off or pluck out your eye. Right. Now, now the, now the right. principle might be true. He might not want you to do that, but but what's the lesson there? What is better, to lose your hand or to spend eternity in hell? The answer is right. pretty easy. Right. Get your hatch out. Well, I mean, and, and that's a great example because, yeah, I mean, he is, I mean, even if we don't take it to the extreme of of actually physically cutting off our hand, we sometimes explain it away and say, oh, so we don't need to cut out things yeah, in our right. lives. Right, and that's not you the know? point, yeah. You can yeah. still watch these movies. We can still do all of these things because, hey, you know, it's just a matter of of repenting at the right time or something like. That. I don't know. the The point is, is that yeah, it becomes a, a well actually. Well, well in these cases, <laughs> yes. in this case, is though yes. it's always to show you what you can't do, and that's true. But that's still a way of sidestepping it. Like, well, I can't fulfill the law. True, perfectly. Does that mean that I'm now free to break every principle espoused in the Decalogue? Because I can't fulfill it. I can't win the next hell cup, but I still have to obey traffic laws. I mean, it's... I, I mean, I mean the, guy, the guy who literally wrote the chapter about how we struggle with sin in Romans 7 is also the guy who told Felix in Acts 24 that he strives to have a blameless conscience before God and before men. And, you know, said elsewhere, I am not aware of anything against myself. And also says, imitate me. Right. Yeah. 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 I've I've heard about that a little (laughs) bit. Yeah. The idea that somehow you're striving to live a, a, a godly life is just obviated by the fact that your salvation is not due to you is insane. It's insane in the Bible. It's insane in any church tradition that treats these things. But I, the reason we're talking about this is because we see, and, and, and certainly I for myself have seen this in my own life, the destruction of the Bible through the use of theological slogans that sound good and end up being not only vacuous, right? They have no, no, no ultimate content, but they're also destructive because they're taking Jesus' words and saying they don't really matter, finally. Before we go to break, quick yes or no question. Ought a Christian strive to please God? Well, actually, we can't. Yes, yes there we go. A Christian should strive to please. Zoan, where do you fall? See or no? Yeah. Sick or non? Obviously, yes. What is yes. with the med posting in here? I thought we spoke English. Right. Hey, okay, yeah. Mister. I'm going to stress the Stefan out as long as I can in the Walter episodes. All right, folks. We'll be right back with more word fitly spoken. If you like what you're hearing and want more, visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history. www.wordfitlyspoken.org We are back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi and Adam Kuntz talking about doctrine and life and many and various other sundry things. 
So we kind of narrowed things down in the first section, really talking about the individual, the person. Let's take a step back and see how what we've been talking about applies to the church at large. Yeah, we're going to be looking in this section, particularly at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. These sections are generally written off by higher critics as as deuteropauline, not really from the apostle of some kind of second generational derivative authority. But if you're a listener to the podcast, and certainly if you're on the podcast, this is Pauline, this is apostolic, this is inspired scripture, so we're going to handle it. And what you might be surprised by here is that the qualifications for pastoral office that Paul lays out are almost entirely personal qualifications. They are not academic or any other kind of formal certified authority. They are, they are personal qualities. You know, we're, we're all pastors on the call here. Have you guys ever been, you know, surprised or, or seen somebody surprised by, by the nature of these qualifications? Do you remember a lot of discussion of these things anywhere in your education? I suppose if you want to just get right after it, I mean, yeah, there are yeah, some, let's do it. there are some qualifications in here that we tend to treat as nice, <laughs> superfluous, optional. I, I mean, I'm, Option, I'm trying to be charitable. Optional is a good word. Optional yeah. is a good word. Right. Like if, yeah, if, you know, if we can get them, yeah, that's good. But lower that bar, Paul. Lower that. Hey, Holy Ghost. Let's quit. Let's quit aiming so on. <laughs> um, so, a lot. It, it's very easy today to simply brush these things aside out of questions of politeness or, you know, best construction. Uh, we don't like to judge. The men in authority who decide these things about admission and the men who are called to oversee this sort of thing, it's a difficult job to look someone in the eye and say, yeah, you you are disqualified from this office, or perhaps you're not the best fit. It's a daunting task for some. Yeah, and I I, kind of wonder about that. Like, Does that exist in organizations that have very high esprit de corps or a very high sense of themselves? Like, does the guy who flunks somebody out of Navy SEALs training, I mean, I'm, I'm sure he feels bad for the guy who's flunking out, but he has to know that it's better for the SEALs if he flunks this guy who's less well qualified than the guys that are staying. You know what I mean? So, you know, you, you feel bad for the guy, but you feel good for the organization. Well, let's that- keep the SEALs metaphor going because that's good. What happens if the SEALs lower the qualifications? People die. Okay, what's the purpose of these qualifications in First Timothy? An overseer is a guard of the church. He is to, he's a protector of the church. Okay, he's a watchman. So to be lax in, in who we allow to occupy the office is a danger to the church. I think that we only think that if we're thinking of what is happening in the church, you know, take look at the warnings in Ezekiel about, about false shepherds. If we take what's happening in the church as of final, ultimate, intensive significance for a person's life now and for eternity, if you don't think of it that way, if you think of it as basically the art of being nice, then it's understandable that you would kind of shuffle people in to the job of being nice that maybe do not meet these qualifications, but can be Nice. And this is not a knock, you know, to be clear for Zelwyn's sake. We don't want to be uh, discriminatory on this podcast, certainly. This, this doesn't mean that being nice is bad. It means that there are things that are far more important than that. Yeah. And, and yeah, because you get the, you get both. I mean, you get, you get, you get extra nice guy, but at the same time, you can get guy who it's all the, the orthodoxy points, but he's obtuse. And maybe doesn't fit the other qualifications too. So you can get the pendulum swing in both directions. And to be fair, I mean, I might be Scandinavian and you know genetically predisposed towards niceness. I mean, <laughs> if, just so everyone's on the same page here. But there is a difference between being a nice guy and being a nice guy who ends up destroying souls in the process. You you cannot be nice to the point where you end up actually letting down your guard and just saying for the sake of harmony that, you know, anything goes. We actually have to be guardsmen on the the, the front line, right? 
we are soldiers in a battle. Exactly. And I, I think this goes back to the last episode about Walther on communion that I did with you guys, where Walther considers the idea that someone may formally affirm, as we talked about in the last segment, formally affirm all the right things, right? So with regard to communion, he says communion is for the people over whom I have oversight, blah, 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 blah. But that person may never actually exercise that oversight, and therefore his formal affirmation exists right alongside his practical denial of what it is that he's affirming. And I think that that same thing can exist when the church maintains these qualifications, right? So the church is not necessarily saying, hey, these qualifications are, you know, these are just wrong, right? That A church that's like ordaining women would be doing that, right? Because they would be saying, well, husband of one wife could be wife of one husband or wife of one wife or wife any, becoming any, a husband, whatever yeah, it is. Any, right? any manner of degeneracy today. Yeah, yeah. Any, any, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, take your pick. Like it's, but I, th- I think that, you know, the, the word that, that Willie used, that, which has kind of a double resonance here for these qualifications is that, you know, that's nice. Like it would be great if somebody actually met those qualifications, but, you know, which, which is always an indicator that basically you don't really value those words, right? So if I have a job description, I say, you have to meet these five points. But if you only meet one, you know, that's fine. Like, you, you, okay, you have a bachelor's degree. Okay, you don't know how to use a computer. Well, that's okay. You know, or you can't look anyone in the eye when talking to them. Well, that's okay. You have a bachelor's degree. You met one of the five points. That means that you really don't value the job description in total. It really doesn't matter. Right. Well, the first thing, I mean, right out of the gate, three, two, even before getting questions of husband and wife, it's that one word that really trips us up immediately. And that's blameless. And mm-hmm. and, and right off the bat, now we're going to have to make a qualification because who is blameless? <laughs> right. And, and And so then it's essentially used this way. Well, nobody's blameless. All have sinned. Okay. True. All are sinners. Well, then, okay. Done. Then we can start chipping away at the other ones. But then, but then, how can you actually deal with actual passages of scripture where Paul, for example, says, "Like you know, I know of nothing against myself." Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. How do we define blameless then? Or our, just a couple other ones, just to, to point this out. This is not just limited to Paul either. But sure. you have like Psalm 14, for example. You know, who is the the righteous man? You know, he who who, do, who doesn't do any of these things, who goes up to the temple. You know, of uh, the 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 one who delights in the law of the Lord from Psalm 1. I mean, it's all over the scriptures. Right. Are we just going to say that nobody can do it? Yeah, right. I mean, I, I think that people need to understand that there is a difference between being sinless on the one hand, which no one is claiming anyone is right. prior to right. glory. There's a difference between being sinless and on the other hand, saying that, well, no, I'm not sinless, but I am not actively striving for evil things, nor am I doing something which makes me completely unqualified to be a pastor. You know, we've, we've talked about, you know, Paul saying, you know, calling them to imitate himself. If I may, Patristic's post, just one sentence. I mean, you have like Chrysostom and other church fathers who are saying, when commenting on this word, mind you, or this verse, that the bishop's life should be unspotted for what purpose so that all should look up to him and make his life the model of their own oh I, that's that's very comfy for me i mean I, yeah i mean i mean <laughs> imitation right the reason paul can say imitate me is because like a good father he's actually doing the right thing right imitate me don't walk across the street when there when is no right. do as i say not as i do right when it comes to the pastoral office right and really, when it comes to being a good dad, but but we're all saved by grace. I you know I mean I mean <laughs> I mean I, right I, right I mean I'm throwing the slogans in precisely because they are so powerful for people, and I think it's really important to say this that Lutherans need to be especially careful to see how their own correct affirmations about the fact that salvation is God's doing can so easily be twisted into lining up with something which is particularly pernicious in our age, which is the idea among Christians and non-Christians alike, that you should be loved unconditionally no matter what you do or no matter how awful you are as a human being. People should just love you anyway. Or 
that the pastor ought to be looked up to because of his wickedness. To put it in the context yeah, flesh of this. Out. Flesh, flesh that out. I mean, I think I know what you mean, but flesh that out. Yeah, well, okay, look. We're, we're looking at what the, the Bible actually says, why a pastor ought to be blameless, what the church fathers say. And you're, you actually are elevating the pastor up as an example. A tremendous yoke, to be honest. You're in a fishbowl, like it or not. Yeah. Okay? Today, though, it's really popular to set up the pastor as an example of what you shouldn't do. So, so hey, I'm going to build this this brand in my name based upon my iniquity. My forgiven iniquity, to be sure, but based upon the bad stuff I did. And so you see this time and time again in many, many different individuals. It kind of It's kind of an outgrowth of this evangelical thing where everybody's given their testimony, and it sort of becomes this uh, contest where you try to one-up each other on who has the most dramatic testimony. But the pastor then gets set up as, you know, they take Paul's words, I am the chief of sinners, and then they, they kind of stop there. And that's what they want to be identified as. You know, they don't, what's Paul's point there? You know, it's it's not to say I'm chief of sinners, so that's that's what I am and that's how I live. And yet for many, I mean, that, that becomes how they see the pastor. And that's how some pastors want to be perceived because it's edgy and it's kind of cool. And it's just another reincarnation, you know, that we've seen since from essentially romantic literature to today. It's the bad boy character just reinvented from whatever foppish guy in literature to James Dean to whatever we have today. I mean, because how else do you want to put it? I mean, what you're dealing with is this idea that sin somehow magnifies grace. Right. And I don't know. Did I, did I successfully flesh that out for you, Adam? Yeah. Yeah. I've got. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Zone. I, I've got a little, a little add to that. No, no, that's fine. I mean, I mean, and yes, God's grace is... We glorify it because, you know, we don't actually contribute anything to our salvation. But if we think that because we go on sinning and that somehow shows that, you know, that's how much I really need Jesus because I'm not, you know, I can't do anything about it or I can't help it. And that really shows how much Jesus is my savior. We are, in a sense, elevating sin up to a point of saying, you know, look at how great of a sinner I am. And that's why. I mean, it's it's really boasting about our our sin. I don't know how else to put yeah, it. Yeah, and to try to frame it as magnifying the grace of God or magnifying Jesus seems to stretch credulity for me. I became a Christian when I was an adult, and sometimes when I tell people that, you know, they're they're surprised, right? And which is understandable. And then sometimes they'll say like, "Oh, that's really interesting," or you know, that that's a very powerful story or something. And it's like. It's like, yeah, I mean, I guess so, right? I mean, it's a powerful story that that Paul is interrupted in the middle of his iniquity and and Christ finds him and calls him to preach his gospel, but you you don't you don't want that. Like you you don't want to have ever been a slave of sin. Yeah, my story is very similar to Adam's. And it's not a detriment to be born into the faith, especially if you have parents who raised you in it. It's not a detriment, okay? You're not better. You're not a better Christian because you tasted the forbidden fruit. Okay, you're not you're not missing out on anything because you didn't sin as much as the guy next to you. Right. And I'm I'm not raising my children to not go to church until they go to college and then I'll tell them to start going to church. I mean, I'm raising them in a way of life which is far preferable in that they have always known that Jesus is Lord. They have always known that they have life in him. They have always known that they should walk in his ways all the days of their lives. But see, but see there's the, there's the point. What you learned mentally has now borne fruit in how you exercise your vocation of father. Okay, so so that's a faith that's living and active. That's a repentance that is true repentance where you saw your sin for what it was and you repented of it in faith. That and see we don't think of it in in those terms. We, we you know you, you just it, it is natural in that way and for for many and Lord willing, you know, for all Christians, but we're at the point where we have to acknowledge that. Not that you would do this. Not that it's not surprising that a Christian parent would do it, but that that raising your children in that way is the fruit of repentance. And it is the fruit a part of the fruit that Jesus talks about in Matthew 7. And it's also part of the qualifications that Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 3. Just to put a bow on that. I mean, I I, I think that 
it's significant that when Paul asked the question about managing your own household, it is a, you know, it is a rhetorical question. To him, the test of your fitness for the pastoral office being about how you manage your family, how you govern your family. The fact that that's a rhetorical question should tell you that the expectation is that the man is living a godly life within the vocations that are nearest to him and completely cannot be opted out of, father, husband. And and right thinking, or um, doctrine, as we mentioned, I think earlier, is assumed. You know, that it's, it's, it's implicit in, in the verses rather than explicit. I mean, I guess you have apt to teach, but you know, it's not a, it's very, we kind of put one thing ahead of the other if we emphasize the other at all, depending upon our denomination or whatever. It's just interesting how important for Paul is the personal life of the pastor. And I, I mean, I think it's important because you find this throughout the Bible. We found it in Matthew. We find it here. You find that the Bible is constantly evaluating people and not merely their statements, that behind their statements are a variety of motivations and desires, holy or unholy. And so that if we are thinking about ourselves or thinking about the church's life or thinking about anyone we encounter merely on the basis of what they openly say, we are very foolish and will be soon deluded and are probably deluding ourselves. Because whether it's having our own slogans in a row or whether it's believing that the people we're interacting with because they have the same slogans are therefore, quote, good guys, is very foolish because what Jesus is telling you is that what is proceeding out of the heart is not necessarily known by what the lips are saying. And that the life is actually the test of the man and not merely, certainly doctrine is a test, but it is not the only test and it is only part of the true test of a man where the doctrine and the life must agree that the one who has the sound, the sound teaching in Titus 1 is also the one who is living in a sound, healthy, sane, good, godly manner. And when those two things are connected, that's when you see a man who is walking in the truth. But when those things are disconnected, the, the, the nice words, the good slogans might remain, but they have been emptied of their power by the man's life. I have to throw in here because, you know, I, I love Old Testament posting. That's just kind of what I do. We have the very, very clear examples of this from the prophets as well. I mean, we recently had Jeremiah 7 as one of our Old Testament readings. And I, I think these words are quite to the point here, Adam. Uh, the Lord says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. I, I mean, I don't know how much clearer you can get than that. Well, that's Old Testament, and like the Pope, we can be functional Marcionites, so on. <laughs> Oof. Oof. Wow. All right. But I mean, it's, it's the, the whole... The whole the, the prophets resonate with this kind of language. Are we going to say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and then go on and turn around and do something else as if these qualifications that Paul is talking about don't actually matter? I mean, we will have to answer for every word that we say. Yeah, it's, a, it's a great point because the prophets are clear not just about slogans, which Jeremiah gets very sarcastic about the slogans of his opponents, but they're also clear about the trust in official processes when those processes have been emptied of divine content by practical denial of God's word. Right. So it is the temple mm -hmm. and it is those in the temple who are opposing Jeremiah as they will later oppose his Lord when Jesus enters into the same place. And, and, and to put a put a point on this, though, to ignore God's commands, to ignore his word in general, is to live as if there is no God. It is to deny him. And that is the natural consequence of simply re of removing the clear meaning of the biblical text. And it happens throughout history, time and time again. Empires fall 
because of their neglect of God's word. And we need to be careful lest we fall into that trap ourselves. Empires fall, certainly, but men fall all the more. And sometimes they find themselves in perdition. Again, salvation, 100% by grace, no doubt. No doubt, not denying that there. But we also believe in a true living and active faith. And more importantly, we believe in a living God who has given us his word for our information, yes, but also for our instruction. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. We'll be back in just a few moments. A Word Fitly Spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all His fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi, Adam Koontz here. Guys, let's pick up right where we left off in the last segment. Adam, you want to take it? Yeah, I want to look at the idea of the fool in Scripture and how the fool, both in the Psalms 14 and 53, and then also in the book of Proverbs, the fool is someone who should know better, could know better, and simply does not. So Willie had mentioned denial of God, a kind of a practical atheism that lives as if he does not exist, which is what we said earlier is Pharisaism. It is a religious system or a set of slogans and favorite practices that might use God's name, but really do not need him at all for power or strength or anything that they're actually doing because they are satisfied with their own performance and their own slogans. I think it's, you know, I mean, I think it's really important to say that the fool is not someone who necessarily has a certain, you know, IQ level or lower in scripture. The fool may in fact be quite intelligent, quite well informed. The fool is simply somebody who has, if especially if he's intelligent, tricked himself into believing that God's words do not impinge upon his life. So that wisdom is not merely the acquisition of knowledge. I mean, the fool might have knowledge as the demons also have knowledge in James. The one who is wise, the one who is given God's wisdom, both has knowledge of God's word and also knows how to put that into practice upon himself and his whole life. That's really different from the mere knowledge of slogans constituting wisdom. Right. It's like Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's not merely a download of information, but it's a reorientation. To to use Proverbs in that sort of language, um, Solomon does not say things like, knowing slogans is the beginning of wisdom. He says, the fear <laughs> of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? <laughs> And what does it mean to, to fear the Lord? Well, well, I mean, it, it means having the correct answers, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I and it, and it's interesting. Even that verse, or even the concept of the fear of the Lord, I I have heard kind of sloganed away, written off by saying, "Well, that that means a kind of you know respect for God." which is nowhere in the Bible. I mean, I mean, people are legitimately scared of his angels when they appear, let alone him. Jesus admonishes him, fear the one who can cast you into hell. Yeah, destroy both body and soul in go. hell. Destroy both body and soul in hell. But actually, you know... <laughs> well, I mean, actually, insert meme... I'm, I, right. I mean, if we can get if we can get the well actually meme for the cover art for this episode... We've done our job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Because because it, it really is the approach to scripture of the fool. He might even be somebody who professionally handles scripture, but as long as he is well actually in scripture, he remains a fool no matter how much he knows. Well, well actually is also another guise of the serpent in Eden, hath God indeed said. The first well actually was spoken in the garden by a snake. Uh, 
and we we need yeah this is this is a meme we need to run with i mean <laughs> we, we we're gonna need to photoshop a serpent set onto the well actually meme yeah. because that is that's pure gold we got guys for that we got an answer yeah yeah we got people <laughs> but it is true and it's so tempting to fall into that for a number of reasons you know one is to tow you know a line Another is to make it easier, and another is to make yourself special and unique in your exegesis, which is part of academic competition. Always going to have that unique little spin. But I think for the most part, it's always, for for the most part, it's trying to sidestep a difficulty or a hard pill to swallow, you know, to, you know, to say euphemistically, because it is so much easier to say that. And if you're in the echo chamber or part of a hive mind, it's very satisfying to get that approval when you say the right slogan and say the right thing. It's very good to get that nod from your group. Yeah, that, no, that's a great I, that, that's a great point because the slogan sloganeering is only valuable within a group, which turns out to be more valuable than the concepts themselves, right? So, if I say the right thing, it really doesn't matter whether or not I believe it because what I'm actually after is the group's approval. Right, right. So we become like the guy going through the motions, getting initiated into his local Masonic Lodge because he likes the atmosphere and he likes the bennies. Well, and since since we're going so hot and heavy with all of this, too, it's also worth pointing out that sometimes that group identity is formed in contrast to what we perceive other groups to be doing. And so the sloganeering is not limited to our our own identity, but it's also part of identifying ourselves against what we perceive someone else to be doing. Well, I mean, why, why would I, why would I do that? If I'm, if I'm following Christ, then my life is hidden in him. I mean, I, what am I, what am I trying to prove by using slogans? I mean, what, what is that going to do for me, Zelwyn, especially to define myself over against somebody else? What am I, what am I looking to do? No, that's a great question. I mean, well, I mean, we can we can all chip in on this, but I think what when we're when we're thinking in terms of sloganeering, when we're thinking in terms of easily digestible ideas, especially ones that distinguish us from a different group, it, I mean, it, it very quickly like uh, establishes our own credentials. I mean, it kind of reinforces my being a part of this group. Kind of a bias confirmation too. A little bit. Yeah. It's it's easier to digest than to deal with uh, the realities. I mean, how do we how do we want to approach this? Yeah, it, it it also means that I don't really need to practice repentance concerning how I say things, how I deal with new people, how I deal with unfamiliar people, and how I articulate the gospel. I think that slogans are also usually the death of mission because it means that I am no longer able to articulate anything in a way which is comprehensible without lots of other prior enculturation because all I have are slogans to offer to people who have no context for them. And I just repeat them and repeat them and repeat them. And I should not then be surprised if people, it really has no purchase with people because, you know, I'm trying to sell snow to Eskimos, basically, right? They, 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 don't, they don't need what I'm offering. It's like speaking a, a different language. Well, I mean, even, even the words like gospel, for example, is loaded with all kinds of meaning in the way that we use that word. Right. I mean, we, right. we use it as a secondhand kind of expression. And that's fine, you know, because we don't need to reinvent the wheel every time we talk about it. But if we're talking to someone who is not a Christian, if we're talking to someone who has never heard the name of Christ, saying things like gospel or even, I mean, even common words like justification, sanctification, even sacrament, these words have no meaning to them. Right. But is this the only way that we can think about them? Obviously, we have to teach, of course. We can't just leave them in their ignorance. But I guess what you're getting at is we, we, we sort of assume that we're further along in the process than we actually are. Yeah, because 
this also links back to the group dynamics thing. If if my religion is centered around my slogans, then the existence of the group that knows those slogans is enough for me, right? I mean, think about the conflict in scripture over the slogans Shibboleth and Sibboleth. Those are about group dynamics, and what they do is they drive apart people who were intended by God to be together, but because of the use or misuse of the proper pronunciation, God's people are driven apart where they should be brought together by their common being incorporated into his people, his story, his salvation. So that what the slogan does is that it solidifies the in-group and makes that in-group inaccessible, even to people who should already agree, let alone to people who have never heard anything about it before. But we're all about, you know, Ephraimites killing other Ephraimites, right? Right. Now, now all all of this discussion is not to say that community is bad. And we're not actually eschewing all group dynamic as if as if the church itself isn't a community. But we are rejecting artificial community or community built upon something other than God's word as the foundation, other than his revelation as the foundation. And what does that look like then? When we gather around the word, we exist as the church, as a community of Christians, and that does look different. It's it's messy sometimes, right? It's difficult to be sure, but we're not rejecting any kind of concept of, of community. We're rejecting a sanitized and really rather artificial version of community. And quite frankly, a type of community that doesn't really serve the greater good and that doesn't serve to further the spread of the gospel throughout the world. But maybe just to put it a little bit differently too, Right doctrine is not a group of slogans. It cannot be. Because if nothing else, it ends up, as you say, you know, solidifying the, the group identity at the expense of the actual things that we're supposed to be conveying. To have the right teaching, to have the to guard the deposit which has been given to us is not a matter of saying all the right things in exactly the right way. It is a matter of teaching those things faithfully in a way that is faithful to God's word and in a way that does not trim off the rough edges or to make it somehow more palatable to our minds, but to to say very clearly, you know, thus saith the Lord and nothing else. Because we can be so caught up in how we say things that, well, we aren't actually saying anything at all. And maybe this was not a explicit earlier in the episode, but I think it's important to draw the parallel here between a vain orthodoxy and what is openly rejecting the Lord's word, that both those things, when they are built on sloganeering, maybe, or open rejection of the Bible, both of those things end up trying to build community without the Lord's word, relying solely on slogans and approved religious performances and you end up building a Tower of Babel. And your Tower of Babel is a definitely a community effort, and it relies on your ability to communicate within the group so that the group understands things, but it does not have the Lord's blessing, and therefore it is destroyed. It is inevitably destroyed. So community is part of what the Lord makes. I mean, he makes a church and not merely a bunch of individuals with their own ways of saying things. And Paul instructs Timothy and Titus to say things in certain ways, observing a sound pattern of words. But the only pattern of words that ultimately we have is the pattern of words which the Spirit has given. And when we obey that, We're doing it within whatever context the Spirit places the church into in order to proclaim the whole counsel of God to everyone whom Christ calls. And that is going to involve sometimes breaking out of slogans in order to communicate the gospel. Hear, hear. Yeah. I mean, how do you you explain the gospel to your children, for example? Do we train them in, you know, the all of the right? I, I just do it in. I just do it in Latin. <laughs> I mean, I just go. I just go hard from from. It's not LARP. Right it's from the beginning. Right. I mean, if right, like after a while, if you're doing it, it's not LARPing anymore. You just become an amazing medieval knight. You know, if you wear the costume enough. So. Yeah, so we just we just start in Latin. I give them the four Aristotelian causes. 
and I explained it that way. And so they're, they're good to go. So, so when they open up Gerhard, you know, none of that is, is weird to them. I, I mean, you know, I mean, I think we're, we're laughing, but I, I think, I think one thing that we're saying here is like what, what becomes slogans start out as very well-intentioned, basically notation sure. for larger realities. Sure they become theological notation for biblical realities. But when we never kind of decode that, that encoding into, you know, notation, theological or otherwise, when we never decode that for somebody, whether it's a child or an adult who's never heard anything about Jesus, when we never decode, we are unable to express the gospel to people we don't, not just that we don't already know, but people that don't already have all the same words that we do. Sure. Yeah, and I use I use the example of children not in the sense that you know we're we're dumbing down the message or something like that, but I find like with my own children, it's actually pretty refreshing because to explain something in in a way that makes sense to them often forces me to think through very carefully what it is that I'm actually trying to say. I can't. Yeah, that's right. I can't just give them the the words and expect that they're going to understand because, well, they're too young, you know, they don't understand. And I find, I don't know, I'm always happy when I'm able to find a way that, you know, my children can understand the concept because then I know that I am teaching them what it is that God wants me to teach them. So, I mean, like in, in like reading the Bible, for example, you know, I mean, just reading straight from the Bible and talking about it as we go along, I find that to be very beneficial for for my own children, you know, just because I'm, I'm striving to present the Bible in a way, you know, directly in a way that is comprehensible to them. It's not always easy, but it's, it's something that they're just dealing with God as he has revealed himself and not God in the way that, I don't know, I want to put him into a box or something like that. I mean, what about your own experiences with these things, either with your children or, you know, with people who don't know the gospel? Yeah, I mean, with with people who don't know the gospel, I have to start out with expressing biblical realities in terms that have some kind of traction with them. And from there, they can go deeper into learning more about God's revelation. And then you can speak in more, more theological notation because they know it now. And it's good shorthand for things. So I don't have to say like, the way that God brings us closer to himself and changes us so that we look more like Jesus, I can just say sanctification, right? I can I can use that shorthand, whether it's biblical or theological. But by then they've learned on the internet that that word's bad, and so they, they leave. Well... <laughs> I, I hope not. I mean, I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, I'm not at Amish bishop levels of like technology restriction, but I mean, I, you know, maybe, maybe this is ironic for somebody who's on a podcast, but I mean, I, th- there is a real danger that, that people go on the internet and, and find the religion that, that, that scratches their itching ears. And sometimes that religion goes under the name of Lutheranism. And in our day, that religion usually means casting the Bible behind your back whenever it says anything that might impinge upon how you actually live your life, which is precisely what we're getting after today. You, you really cannot separate what you believe from how you live. Those are both things all wrapped up in whom you are ultimately fearing, loving, and trusting. Yeah, if I may use the cliche, we've got a whole hour without using, but orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Sure. You know, and there, I'm going to use a slogan, you know, in the episode that's against <laughs> slogans. But, you know, hey, whatever. Our podcast. Do whatever we want. <laughs> do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, all, it's all getting horribly ironic at the end. I mean, we're just, we're spiraling into irony. I can't even, I mean, I can't even, I can't <laughs> even fathom. Levels, irony levels that shouldn't even be possible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and, and, and also with all of this too, shorthand is useful in its own way. I mean, and that's kind of what you were getting at, Adam. I mean, there is a point in which we can use shorthand and it has some benefit. But what we have to recognize is that shorthand is always just that. It's just shorthand. So like, for example, the word Trinity is a decent enough word, right? I mean, we use it. It's I mean, we don't have anything better. But the reality is, is that the word Trinity does not encompass who God is. God is far greater than that word of triunity. 
We are not able to wrap our minds around who God is in his essence. And so we use the word Trinity to talk about these things as a shorthand. But in, if we stick, if we restrict, restrict ourselves to just that word and assume that we have somehow grasped the fullness of who God is by using that word, then we're missing the point. We're shortchanging the word because we have latched onto something that actually is just is more conducive to our own ways of thinking. Well done, Reverend Heidi. All right, that's going to that's gonna wrap it up here on A Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check out our Facebook group if you have any questions or anything. Word Fitly Posting. That's Word Fitly Posting over on the Facebook. Check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi and Adam Kuntz. God love you, and God bless.